0: Who remembers what a handbrake turn is? Ah, some of you do. Has anyone actually tried one? Um, If you have. Ah, I'm impressed. Good on you. I was hoping for a ticket though. Did you get a ticket? No? Okay. Can anyone remember why the handbrake turn is significant spiritually? Well, of course it's a very vivid description of the abrupt change of direction that we enjoy when God rescues us from that value of death and despondency and raises us to life because of His great mercy and love. What an amazing and encouraging thought that is. How fantastic that we can start this week's message with that in mind. Reading from Ephesians 2 then, beginning with verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we'll begin this week's sermon by looking at verses 5 and 6. There'll be a little bit of overlap with last time, but we need to be holding thoughts together to make sense of the text. Now, there are three things that happen to believers in this passage but we must recognise that they are only there under two overarching conditions. And none of these things are in any way possible without firstly the love of God and secondly the redeeming work of Jesus. We can never go on to any discussion of the benefits we enjoy from salvation without acknowledging these fundamentals because they underpin everything. God didn't make a way for us to be redeemed because he felt sorry for us or because He felt indebted to us, but simply because He loved us. And if you remember, we spoke about that agape love in the last sermon. The way He made for our redemption was one that could only be walked by His Son, Jesus, whose death on the cross paid the penalty for all of mankind's sin and brought about the new life and certainty of heaven we will be talking about today. And although we're going to be talking about people, about us a lot, we mustn't forget that it is God who has done all of the work to make these things possible. Thus we read in verses 4 and 5 that as a result of God's love for us and as a result of the redeeming work of Christ, Paul tells us that we have been made alive with Christ, we have been raised up with Him, and we are seated with Him. These expressions describe our spiritual position as a result of our union with Jesus. He acted as our representative for us in heaven. Not only for us, but as us. Do you get that? Christ stood in our place. He stood in your place. Therefore, when he died, we died. And when he was buried, we were buried. But most gloriously, when he was made alive, raised and seated in the heavenly places, so were we. All the benefits of his sacrificial work are enjoyed by us because of our link with him. To be made alive together with him means that all who accept him as Lord and Saviour are now now associated with him in newness of life. The same mighty power that gave him resurrection life has given it to us also. Now, here you'll see that Paul interjects, he puts a little thing in in brackets, that we have been saved by grace. It's just a little foretaste of what he will shortly say. But what we should note is that although the use of the word have in this little thing suggests to us in English something that was one-off and happened in the past, the Greek tense tells us more exciting things. It tells us that there is a continuous consequence of salvation. Grace not only provides salvation for sinners through the sacrificial death of Christ, but it also continuously enables believers to live acceptably before God. Jesus not only removed our sins, accumulated up to the time of salvation, but all of those thereafter. This is the miracle that allows us to have that relationship with God, that allows us to boldly approach the throne that we sung about just now. If it were not there, we would all be back to square one within one minute of salvation. We must praise God then for his gracious and continuous forgiveness of our sins, a loving act that we should never take for granted. Now, all of that is incredibly loving and generous, but like those dreadful commercials, there is more, except with a particular difference. This time it really is something of great value. It has to do with where God takes us. Remember what we've done. We've deliberately sinned against him and offended him in so many ways. So it wouldn't be unreasonable for us in our human experience to imagine that we might get stashed away somewhere where we couldn't do any more harm. Not a luxurious place, but maybe somewhere with the basic amenities. You know, hopefully clean and functional. That would be nice. But God does something really surprising and marvelous. Instead of this imagined out of the way spot, He promises to settle us in heaven. And moreover, not just some some kind of poor relative, but as an honored guest seated together with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That is truly amazing. How excited ought we be about going to heaven? Well, if I came running up to you after the service and breathly announced, breathlessly announced that I was going to that ultimate holiday destination, Eketahuna, <laughs> I'm guessing you'd be a lot less impressed than if I said I was going to some exclusive and expensive tropical island retreat. In fact, you'd probably be looking for a polite way to move away as soon as possible. Now, if we think that a tropical paradise would be fantastic, how ought we to feel about being invited to live in heaven. Well, this asks, this causes me to ask the question, what is heaven like? Well, firstly, what is heaven? We talk a lot about it, but what is it? We know that it is the place where God dwells, because that is what Scripture tells us. In Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord says, Heaven is my throne. And Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus has now gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. The idea that heaven is the place where God lives actually raises a little complication because we know that God is omnipresent, isn't he? He's everywhere at once. So how can he be both in a specific place and everywhere at the same time? Well, I think we need to understand heaven as being something more than just where God is. And Wayne Grudem gives us this helpful definition. He says, heaven is the place where God most fully makes his presence known to bless. This gives us a bit of a clearer answer. Whilst God is found everywhere, neither his blessing nor his full presence are completely seen everywhere. The greatest manifestation of God's presence to bless is seen In heaven, where he makes his glory known, where angels and other creatures and redeemed saints all worship him. This is something that we won't presently see on earth because of its sinful condition, and because fallen humans aren't even physically able to stand the glory of God. Remember in Exodus 33, what Moses did when he was on the mountain. He asked if he could see God's glory. But God told him that no man can see my glory and live. So instead he stuck Moses away in the cleft of a rock and covered him with his hand and walked past and when he'd gone by took his hand away so that Moses could just see his back. And uh, that had consequences. You know, There's no clear link um, in in the scriptures but we can deduce... um, from the circumstance when Moses came down from the mountain to talk to the Israelites again, his face was glowing so much that he had to cover it with a veil. Um, and that was that was just from seeing God's back. <laughs> Imagine what heaven would be like. Although we've spoken thus far of heaven as being an experience, Scripture does also confirm that is that it is a place. And one of the clearest examples of this is in Jesus' great promise in John 14. He says this, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. I'd say it's pretty clear that he's talking about a place there. So heaven is a place, although one whose location is now unknown to us and whose existence, well, we can't perceive it with our natural senses, we can only know that it's there because that's what scripture tells us. It is this place of God's dwelling that will be somehow made new at the time of the final judgment and will be joined to a renewed earth. And it is this place that Paul is promising we will sit together with Christ. We can expect a totally different type of experience there, an existence there to be really different to what we know. Revelation 21 promises this. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he sat on the throne and said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Folks, I don't know if you've ever thought about this uh, passage, but it's been on my mind quite a lot recently. You know, as we go about our day, our minds are often filled with trouble and turmoil, doubts, sadness, God's word promises us that in heaven all those things are going to go away. Isn't that something to look forward to? To praise God for. And here's the rub. It's something to tell others about. We have this marvelous promise, but it isn't something for us to hold on to as though it were a loaf of bread given to a starving man. It's something to offer around freely with an open hand. We got it freely and undeservedly, and we should be gracious enough to pass it on with the same spirit. In fact, we are required to do so with enthusiasm. Okay? Matthew 10:27, Jesus is instructing his disciples, "Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops." Have you seen that silly advert for roof sheeting, for colour steel, the roof shout? That's what we're supposed to be doing, except we're not supposed to be talking about sheets of steel. I'm not going to say anything more about this because actually I've got a little bit ahead of myself and Paul's going to say some more specific things about this in a moment, so I'm just going to move on now to verse 7. And that reads, That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're expecting something deeply meaningful here, I'm sorry, this isn't a very complicated verse. It's just that here we have the reason that God quickened, raised, and seated believers together with Christ. It's just so that he can show his grace in the coming ages. We will stand eternally, as witness to God's glorious character, a testimony to the wealth of his grace and the work of Christ. I think that's kind of a privilege as well. Not a crucial connection here that points to what Paul has to say shortly about grace. All that we have read about so far has been accomplished by two words. and Those two words are, in Christ. Jesus was the mechanism, no man, ever had anything to do with this, nor had any ability to raise himself up. It had to be accomplished through Jesus, and it was for our good and God's glory. We now move on to verses 8 and 9, which are very well known by many and constitute a very important part of Protestant doctrine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. The parts are all coming together now for full effect. Okay? We have God's love, we have Christ's sacrifice, grace, and faith. They are God's perfect recipe for salvation. Without any one of those things, there will be no tasty cake. It will be a miserable failure. Let's be very clear here. No one should be ever misled by any worldly philosophy that says things like oh, everyone has their own reality or I believe there are many ways to get to heaven or any one of a thousand other apparently meaningful philosophies. Now, before I go on to talk about this a little bit more I want to acknowledge that I've drawn heavily on a book by MacDonald and Foster. It's called The Believer's Bible Commentary and I've used a lot of it verbatim because it has a very... Excellent explanation of this text. And You might like to call me lazy, but I can recognise better work than mine when I see it. Something else I want to mention is that there are a bunch of scriptures to support what I'm about to say, and rather than read them out, I've just included their references in your notes so that you can have a look at them yourselves. Okay, let's carry on. Salvation is not something a person can earn through good deeds, or observing religious ritual. It cannot be earned, for instance, by things like confirmation, baptism, church membership, uh, church attendance, Holy Communion, trying to keep the Ten Commandments, living by the Sermon on the Mount, giving to charity, being a good neighbour, or living a moral, respectable life. This list is by no means exhaustive, but it does contain many of the activities commonly associated with being Religious. Now, I'm not trying to say that doing any of these things is abhorrent to God in themselves. Quite the opposite. In fact, we are quite specifically called to live out our faith by works. Remember what we saw in the book of James. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And he also said, faith without works is dead. We celebrate communion on the specific instruction of Jesus himself. As a proper remembrance of the sacrifice for us. But the moment we begin to think that any of those actions alone, or any combination of them, can redeem us to God, then we are positively 180 degrees, of course. Paul wants to be sure that there is no misunderstanding possible, and he lays it out, really, in black and white. I'm going to give you six reasons to support what Paul has said about salvation being through grace. Firstly, people are not saved by works. And they are not saved by faith plus works. They are saved through faith alone. The minute you add works of any kind or in any amount as a means of gaining eternal life, salvation is no longer by grace. Secondly, one reason that works are positively excluded is to prevent human boasting. If anyone could be saved by his works, then he would have reason to boast before God. Look at me, i got myself here. This is impossible. What could any puny, sinful man possibly have to boast about before the Creator of not just himself, but the whole universe? Thirdly, if anyone could be saved by his own good works, then the death of Christ was unnecessary. And the death of Christ was a big, serious thing. Kind can't have been unnecessary. We know the reason he died was because there was no other way that guilty sinners could be saved. Fourthly, if anyone could be saved by his own good works, then he would be his own saviour, and he could worship himself. But that would be idolatry, and God categorically forbids it. Fifthly, even though, even if somebody could be saved through faith in Christ, plus his own good works, then you're going to have this impossible situation of two saviours, Jesus and the sinner. Christ would then have to share the glory of saviorhood with another. And this he will not do. And you'll see that when you look at the scripture. Finally, if anyone could contribute to his salvation by works, then God would owe it to him. And this too is impossible, for God cannot be indebted to anyone. In contrast to works, faith excludes boasting, because it is non-meritorious. A man has no reason to be proud that he has trusted the Lord. Faith in Him is the most sane, rational, and sensible thing a person can do. To trust one's Creator and Redeemer is only logical and reasonable. If we cannot trust Him, then who can we trust? There is only one way to heaven, one way for salvation, one way for reconciliation with our sovereign Creator and God, and that is by grace through faith in Jesus. There is nothing any man can do that will bridge the gap. Now, when I was a teenager, my dad was a great fan of the satirical magazine, Mad. Okay. Well, I can hear lots of people know about Mad magazine, and so I became one, two. Now the cover of these magazines always featured a uh, an imaginary character named Alfred E. Newman in some situation related to the comments. And there was one particular cover that I recall well that illustrates the futility of a man trying to save himself. And thanks to the internet, I was able to find an illustration here is our hero holding himself off the ground. Can you see that? He's holding the branch up and keeping himself up. What well, isn't going to happen, is it? No amount of muscular effort or power of imagination will ever defeat the physical force of gravity. In the same way, unredeemed mankind is held down firmly by the force of sin. Since it is spiritual, there is no force that a man can wield that will ever defeat it. But grace can. That is why I've titled this sermon, Grace Over Gravity. We have every reason to thank God that this is the case. Now, this possibly sounds like the end of the sermon, but it isn't. There's a very important matter left here. Paul has left a little sting in the tail. In verse 10, he's written, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Does anybody know what the Greek word for workmanship is? Put your notes, put your notes. That's yes. Okay? And the word literally means a thing made handiwork, a masterpiece. And unsurprisingly, we find it in modern English as the word poem. God's church is his poem, his masterpiece, his workmanship. We, all of us here, are God's masterpiece and his poem. But a poem isn't intended to be empty of meaning, just as anything that is made is made for a purpose. We are intended for the good works that God has already created. Now, I know not everybody has got one, but a lot of you will have got little red admission tickets in your broadsheet when you came in. and Maybe you've been wondering why. Okay? If you're a believer, that's fantastic. You have been saved by grace, through faith. You have your ticket for entry to heaven. Admission is guaranteed, and you haven't had to pay a thing for it but possession of that ticket doesn't absolve you of all responsibility. There are some shoes to fill. There are some good works waiting that we must walk in. The question is, are we doing that? Are we searching out those good works and doing them? I want to ask you to take that ticket home and put it somewhere where it will remind you just to think about that.